0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, and you are listening to the podcast where I want to talk about everything. No holds barred. Whatever that means, actually come to think of it, no holds barred probably has to do with boxing, right? You're not allowed to hold your opponent and punch them in a civilized boxing match. But if it's an all-in-all, all-out brawl, then you permit holds, I guess. You don't bar them in any event. This is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, and also Christmas Eve. So, Merry Christmas Eve. Tomorrow, I will say Merry Christmas, but right now it is the eve of Christmas. And I want to talk about Christian civilization and an article sent to me by my neighbor, J.P. Chavez, two houses down. J.P. sent me this piece by... Bradford Littlejohn. In The American Reformer, he writes, Reimagining a Christian America. And we're going to get into that. This article is only two days old. But before we get into that, an interesting thought occurred to me as I was reading this piece by Bradford Littlejohn. Yesterday, I was following around a dispatcher. On his field day. And the last site I came to, I was introduced to a couple of technicians with Eagle Automation. And one of them, an older gentleman whose name I forget already, I think it was Tom. But this older gentleman strikes up a conversation with us, and we're talking back and forth. We were just about to part ways and we were going to go do our thing and he was going to continue on doing his thing and he told us Merry Christmas or Happy Festivus and apparently we didn't react as if we knew what he was talking about what Festivus is or we didn't react the way he should have liked to have seen us react when he mentioned Festivus and There was a brief pause and he asked, you guys do know what Festivus is, right? And the dispatcher I was with kind of shook his head, no. And I said, is is it a pagan holiday or what is Festivus? He says, no, no. It comes from Seinfeld. There's this episode of Seinfeld where I think it was Seinfeld's dad, he said, had gotten into fisticuffs with somebody over a disagreement in a store over some purchase or something, some some kind of a disagreement and gets into a fight and it occurs to Seinfeld's dad that there needs to be a holiday around Christmas for people who aren't all that keen on Christmas a Festivus for the rest of us, as he calls it. And so he proceeds to outline what it is that will be done on Festivus to commemorate this holiday for everyone who's not that big on Christmas. Feats of strength and drinking games and some such. And so now this is a thing in the pop culture apparently, I guess I didn't know about it because I do like Christmas and I don't watch Seinfeld and I didn't watch Seinfeld back in the day, but it got me curious as to what it was we were talking about and I'd like to play a little clip, if I can, for this segment from Seinfeld in which Festivus is explained take a listen
1: nothing it's a card from my dad what is it (laughs) (laughs) dear son happy Festivus? What is Festivus? It's nothing. It's nothing. When George was growing Jerry, up, no. his father no. hated all the commercial and religious aspects of Christmas, yeah. so he made up his own holiday. Oh, and another piece of the puzzle falls into place. All right. <laughs> and instead of a tree, didn't your father put up an aluminum pole? Like, Jerry, no, stop it. it. And then weren't there feats of strength that always ended up with you crying? I can't huh? it anymore. I'm going to work. you happy now? <laughs> oh. I got your message. I haven't celebrated Festivus in years. What is your interest? just tell me everything, huh? Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. (laughs) I reached for the last one they had, but so did another man. As I rained blows upon him, I I realized there had to be another way. What happened to the doll? It was destroyed. But out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. That must have been some kind of doll. She was. (laughs) And at the Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and tell them all the ways they have disappointed you over the past year. And is there a tree? No, instead there's a pole. Requires no decoration. I find tinsel distracting. Frank, this new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch let's do it then all right festivus is back i'll get the pole out of the crawl space hello frank hello woman well happy festivus what is that is that the pole george festivus is your heritage it is part of who you are that's why i hate it it's a big dinner tuesday night at frank's house everyone's invited george you're forgetting how much festivus is meant to us all I brought one of the cassette tapes. Read that poem. I can't read it, I need my glasses. You don't need glasses, you're just weak, you're weak. Leave him alone! All right, George. It's time for the Festivus Feats of Strength. Oh, no, turn it off, Don't feats of strength! I, I, Festivus! We had some good times. They nailed you on the 20 Gs? Busted (laughs) cold. It's made from aluminum very high strength to weight ratio. I find your belief system fascinating. (laughs) Hey, happy Festivus, everyone. (laughs) Welcome newcomers. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're gonna hear about it. You, Kroger, my son tells me your company stinks. Oh god. What? You will get yours in a minute.
0: And you get the picture. So Festivus is a replacement holiday. And actually, Festivus is allegedly supposedly reportedly celebrated on the 23rd. December 23rd yesterday was Festivus. So-called, and so I'm thinking about this, and again, this is new to me. I didn't grow up watching Seinfeld. I never really have liked the show over much. I found it kind of obnoxious, uh, quite honestly. But the idea of trying to come up with a replacement for Christmas because of the commercialization, because of the pressure and the stress of having to decorate a Christmas tree, we're going to substitute a cold aluminum pole in place of a Christmas tree. Instead of buying gifts for one another, we're going to give the gift of biting criticism to one another. I'm going to tell you all of the ways you've disappointed me over the past year. Get ready. Apart from the story of Christmas being true, Oh, why not, right? Why not embrace that or any other thing? But this actually leads into the article J.P. Chavez sent me from American Reformer. Starting from the top, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'll throw a link in the podcast description here so you can check it out in full. I would encourage you to. It's a Very well-written article, very thought-provoking. I don't know that I agree with him on everything, particularly with regards to public education, but he makes some really excellent points which should not be ignored or dismissed out of hand. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak at a joint Davenant Institute American Reformer panel discussion on the theme, Does Christian America Have a Future?, Before answering such a bold question, other questions perhaps are in order. Should Christian America have a future, for instance? Or even more basically, what might it mean to speak of a Christian America? Now, let me stop him right here. What Little John is asking is the important question. If we decided that we saw a value in public Christianity, cultural Christianity, a christian america as it's known if we saw a value in that as christians in america as the evangelical protestant church in america it would be the reason why christian america might not have a future is because we don't believe the answer or at least not enough of us believe the answer to the question of should christian america have a future is the affirmative. Not enough of us believe that the answer to that question is yes. Should Christian America have a future? No. The answer for most evangelical Christians in America is quite simply no. Or it's so qualified and it's so muddled and it's so muddied that you would never be able to get a consensus built up around the answer to where you would have a Christian culture. If we do have a Christianized culture right now, it is buried in a whole lot of hand-wringing and apologizing and embarrassment, quite frankly. So, he is asking the right question. He was asked one question. He reframed the question to what it actually is. Should Christian America have a future? Continuing on. For many American evangelicals longing to see their nation's churches full, the idea of a Christian America might not extend much further than the vision of a great religious revival. A Christian America, on the conversionistic understanding typical of so many evangelicals, might mean nothing more than an America chock full of Christians. With their public theology limited to the Great Commission, there's a line for you, by the way. Let me read that again. With their public theology limited to the Great Commission and their vision of making disciples merely a matter of getting people to pray the sinner's prayer, evangelicals have for the past couple generations been complicit in the de-Christianization of America as faith is reduced to a purely private concern and religion reduced to the business of saving souls. Still, most evangelicals deep down know better. Their common sense is often better than their theology. Ouch. Ouch. Understanding that private faith must express itself in public life. Indeed, earlier generations of American evangelicals understood that religious revival also entailed cultural renewal. The revivalists of the Second Great Awakening, for all their emphasis on individual conversion, were also great institution builders and moral crusaders establishing schools, colleges, and societies to help transformed lives issue in a transformed society. Minimally, it seems, to speak of a Christian America, then, must mean an America that features a Christian public culture. By public culture, I have in mind things like public social norms, artistic norms, popular entertainment, business practices, including some level of Sabbath observance, and much more. Now, pausing again... Third paragraph in. He's right. Uh, th- this is what so many American evangelical Christians wring their hands about and are apologetic for and are embarrassed by. This is precisely what it is that they are thinking about. They're thinking about cultural Christianity as it has been expressed, as they remember it being expressed in times past. And if I dare say, a whole lot of babies have been thrown out with the bathwater. Because there were problems, because there were imperfect expressions of Christianity in public life, the solution for succeeding generations was, we're just going to do away with public expressions of Christianity. If it was done poorly, we're just going to not do it at all. Similar to Festivus replacing Christmas, rather than changing our attitude about Christmas, changing the way we celebrate Christmas, we're just going to not celebrate Christmas at all. We're going to replace it with an entirely new holiday based on nothing except for our imagination and audacity and grievances. And insofar as the Christian message is about grace and about God's plan God's purpose, God's goodness, God's character, not our ability to execute. And yet, all the same, us having a responsibility to respond. God issues the call. We're the ones who are supposed to respond. In so far as all of that should produce a more forgiving and more humble and more repentant approach where we don't stop living altogether just because we can't live perfectly one has to wonder how Christian a lot of American evangelical Christians really are and their perspective on cultural Christianity in decades past in generations past the whole cancel culture thing in secular America the whole woke business in secular America and increasingly in the church indicates a breakdown of our understanding of God's grace and of God's unchangeable purpose. We do not have a gracious approach to the imperfections of generations past. We just don't. Now, it's one thing to say, I was blind, but now I see. It's quite another thing to say, everyone and everything that went before me was garbage and trash and worthless and throw it all out. Well, wait a second. You are in part a product of all of that. What's to say at a certain point you don't just throw yourself out? What's to say you don't at a certain point throw your family and your church and your business and your community and your city and your state and your nation out? At what point do you draw the line and say, we need to reform rather than abolish? Now I disagree with something he's going to get into here in a bit with regards to public institutions public culture public social norms there is a advocacy of american public education being retaken reformed I think it's a little late for that I think that that ship has sailed We don't need to retake American public schools. We need to abolish American public education. And that needs to be replaced with private schools, charter schools, Christian schools, and homeschooling across the board. But all the same, do we abolish society? Do we abolish America as we divorce American public life from its Christian roots, from the foundations of our ways of thinking about God and ourselves and life? I would say we do. I would say we do. Continuing on with his article. To be sure, we should not deceive ourselves into equating such a Christian public culture with the norms and practices of the institutional church or be blind to the myriad ways in which such a culture will fall short of Christ's call for radical discipleship. A Christian public culture, like a Christian person, will still be deeply sinful and deficient, but it can still be an awful lot better than the alternatives. If you're skeptical, just pause for a moment to consider the blood-soaked public culture of ancient Rome, dominated by war, slavery, gladiatorial games, and the lust for domination or the sex-obsessed public culture of the post-Christian West, with ubiquitous pornography and its inane celebration of gender experimentation as the pinnacle of personal heroism. Now, pausing again. Each one of these paragraphs is rich with meaning, and he's touching on a lot here. Read Eusebius's The Church History. Read Augustine's City of God. Look at the tortures and deprivations and injustices against Christians detailed in those books. Look at the pagan persecution of Christians if for no other reason than that they refused to repeat the mantra, Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. We're going to refer to Jesus as Lord because Jesus is our highest authority as Christians. We're not going to participate in offering sacrifices to the pagan gods of Rome We're not going to offer libations to the emperor as a god. We are not going to participate in the civic religion of pagan Rome. Oh, well then, we're going to feed you to lions. We're going to seize your property. We're going to throw you out of office. We're going to flog you in the streets. We're going to say all manner of evil against you. We're going to take your wives and your daughters, and we're going to rape them. Or they're going to kill themselves, as very often happened, in that early persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. You had a lot of Christian women who rather than being given to the Roman soldiers for sport would drown themselves or poison themselves or find some other way of ending their life. All because Rome in its paganism was not content to have any stone left unturned In dominating all of humanity inside and outside the Roman Empire now look at our current situation read Carl R. Truman's rise and triumph of the modern self look at how our conception of ourselves has changed over the past few centuries the self has become self-existent self-absorbed systems are everything wrong with our expression of our true authentic selves. Thanks to men like Sigmund Freud, we now think of all of our actions and interactions in sexual terms. Therefore, to stop someone from expressing their sexuality, whatever pops into their head, I think therefore I am, to express sexually, to pursue sexually, is a denial of that person's humanity. You're dehumanizing that person to say, no, that's wrong, that's immoral, that's wicked, that's evil, that's bad, that's foolish. And so what you get is you don't get a vacuum. You don't get a values-less society. You get a society that values highly something that it ought not to value that highly. It's not that it ought not to value at all the thing that it's valuing, but it's that it has made a God out of something in the absence of the true God. Idols become ascendant and now we worship Aphrodite or we worship Mars or we worship the emperor and anyone who says different needs to be destroyed because they're a threat to the order. They're a threat to society. He's exactly right. Little John here is exactly right. It's one thing to say we don't want a Christian culture because of all of the attendant problems, shortcomings, and yet, as he puts it midway through this last paragraph I read for you, it can still be an awful lot better than the alternatives. Compared to what needs to be the question? That needs to be the question to the woke social justice crowd, anti capitalists. Compared to what? It's one thing for you to tear down Christmas, but this Festivus business, for instance, is a very sorry substitute. It's a very sorry replacement. You don't like the distraction of tinsel. Well, I'm sorry. You don't have to have tinsel, but that also means you don't have to have an aluminum pole. I find your aluminum pole distracting. It would seem we are at an impasse. You don't like the pressure of having to buy gifts for people. And yet, you're going to make feats of strength a feature of Festivus. Of course, it's a joke. It's a mocking. But it's very postmodern, and it's mocking of everything. And even the show Seinfeld, for that matter. I've heard this often when people describe Seinfeld. I think when Jerry Seinfeld himself described Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing. Yes, that's the point. Well, in some sense, then... Is it actually a show about nihilism? You know, my podcast is subtitled, I Want to Talk About Everything. And what I mean by that is a more accessible way of expressing that I want to be very intentional in the cultivation of my worldview. I want every thought to be captive to Christ. I want the way that I think about Seinfeld or shopping malls or oil and gas, or Chinese censorship of Disney, or fill in the blank. I want my way of thinking about these things to be subject to Christ, to where when I say Jesus is Lord, I mean that. I mean Lord of all creation, all that is in heaven and hell and on earth, Lord of all creation. And I want to think in those terms and I want to act in those terms and I want to relate to other people around me and to God and to my life and to my choices in that way so what is being said when you have a show which is admittedly about nothing what's being said is it doesn't really matter it's nihilism it is the end result of post-truth all the while it's self-contradictory but it doesn't care because even self-contradiction doesn't really matter. It's a kind of moral, spiritual, intellectual death to say nothing matters. Nothing means anything. Who cares? An aluminum pole, ugly, gross. That's very postmodern. Put that in the middle of your living room. You might get a few chuckles from the atheists, but at the end of it all, what symbol were you holding up? What were you standing for? You were standing for nothing. You were standing against all claims of truth because you believe as Michel Foucault does, all truth claims are just a will to power. You believe as Thomas Paine does, that each successive generation has the right to make it all up as they go. No responsibility, only rights. That's Thomas Paine. And if you have a responsibility, it's all secondary to your rights you have a responsibility to stand up for your rights meanwhile the Burkean would say no I have the right to fulfill my responsibilities I have a responsibility to God God has put me here for a purpose I have a purpose I have a responsibility I have a duty to respond to God when God calls I respond when God gives me this as my lot in life I give thanks that's due I give worship and praise to God. That's due. I give God my obedience, not in a self-righteous way, not in a self-saving way, but because God deserves it. To say nothing means anything, it really doesn't matter, nobody cares, is at the heart of it the wrong response to God. Even to say that most things or that public life doesn't matter is a faulty response to God, particularly if God says public life does matter. And He does say that. Jeremiah 29 7, seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. That puts that to rest right away, immediately, like right now. This earth is not my home. Yeah. And I'm in exile. Oh, yeah. Jeremiah 29 7 is addressed directly to exiles. Seek the welfare of the city. Not just make disciples, seek the welfare of the city. Build homes, take wives, have children, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, which would include, but not be limited to, seeking the welfare of the city and taking wives and building homes and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. Call and response. All of history is a call and response where God Gives us our daily bread. He gives us the dominion mandate. He gives us life. And he expects us to do something with it. He calls us to do something with it. When we say life is meaningless, worthless, and I don't like it, and I don't care. That does not only affect us because we don't belong to ourselves at the end of the day. We don't ultimately belong to ourselves. To claim otherwise is an usurpation of God's property right over us. God owns us, but do we act like it? Continuing on. To be sure, a Christian public culture will be better than the alternatives in at least three ways. First, even for the many members of society who never come to share Christian faith, a Christian public culture serves as a profound form of neighbor love. Oh, I love that. Exactly right. Why? Because for all its imperfections, it is more in tune with reality, more in tune with the God-given telos of the human being. A culture that doesn't glorify casual sex or gratuitous violence is, believe it or not, a more pleasant place to live for the vast majority of people, and especially for the weak and easily exploited whom we are especially called to love as Christians. Okay, so this, this paragraph, this ties into so much, so many things. For one, love your neighbor as you love yourself gets trotted out very superficially, very often. We say it, and it's a pat answer. It's a bumper sticker response to something we disapprove of. Well, that wasn't very nice of you to say what you just said to them. You're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, it's not very nice that you're questioning somebody's core identity, their expression of their sexuality, because we can't separate out somebody's person from their sexuality and whatever pops into their head, if they want to have a deep and abiding attraction to trees, their dendrophiliac, then who are you to deny their humanity? Because that is their humanity. Well, that's their sinful humanity. That's a depraved humanity. That doesn't mean that that was God's original intention and purpose for them. Now, Mainstream superficial Christianity, which has by and large rejected cultural Christianity as anathema, as ungodly, as wicked, as superfluous at best, a distraction from the gospel and the Great Commission at worst. Mainstream Christianity has trotted out our call to love our neighbor as ourselves in very rudimentary terms. And what I mean by that is two words, be nice. Be nice, be a nice person. That's how you love your neighbor. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that is just not cutting it. How's that working out for you, Dr. Phil would ask. Loving my wife does not just mean I put on a smile in the morning when I say, hi, how did you sleep? Loving my wife means sometimes saying, hey, you look like you could use a brick. Or, can I get you anything? Or, I don't think we should go to the Christmas Eve service because you're having some pretty intense early labor and we need to make it another week or two, I think. I don't want you to overdo it. Putting my foot down, I'm saying, as much as we would love to, we should not go to the Christmas Eve service. Not because... Christmas Eve is inherently objectionable. We would love to be there, but I love you. And so I'm going to serve you by saying, I don't think we should do that. I think we should do this instead because it would serve you better. Loving my children doesn't just mean that I speak in a positive way to them. Oh, hi, Solomon. Good morning. How are you? You look lovely this morning. You look... Really, I shouldn't say that. I've never said, you look lovely this morning, except to my daughter or my wife. But you get the point. I'm not saying to Solomon in the morning only good morning. If he tells me he's hungry for some breakfast, the loving thing is to say, well, let's get you some breakfast. Do we have something to cook up? Do we have some eggs and some bacon and some toast and some cold cereal and some... Fill in the blank. Hey, Dad, I'm feeling not so good. Or... Hey, I'd like to talk with you about something. My loving my son requires much more than my just being nice, being friendly, being pleasant in my tone. Be warmed and filled is not loving. And yet that is what we're left with if we refuse to engage in a meaningful way with public life as Christians. For all its imperfections, Little John writes, It is more in tune with reality. More in tune with the God-given telos of the human being. Telos being purpose. What is this thing made for? Why does it exist? What's it for? What do we do with it? Telos. People have telos. Human beings have telos. One of the most fundamental existential philosophical questions anybody can ask is, who am I and why am I here? When people stop having an answer to that question, that's when very bad things happen. That's when people do very bad things to themselves and those around them. When they stop believing that there is an answer to that question that is meaningful, that is important, that is good, that is worth pursuing and continuing. Man's Search for Meaning is an excellent book in this regard. Highly recommended by Dennis Prager. Victor Frankl writes as a psychologist, a Jew, who was a psychologist, I should say, prior to the rise of Nazism in Germany. And he, along with all of his family and his friends who were also Jewish, are rounded up, arrested, thrown in concentration camps where they are starved and beaten and deprived and dehumanized and mistreated and made to turn on one another and tortured and murdered in mass. And you ask yourself, what is the purpose of that? What's the point of that? Viktor Frankl comes out on the other side and he writes, Man's Search for Meaning, And he talks about how the ones who survived the concentration camps were the ones who believed that there is a meaning and a purpose even for this, even for the suffering that we're experiencing right now. The suffering is not the purpose. The suffering is not the point. But there is meaning even to the suffering. So then the Christian must have an answer for the question of the telos, the purpose of man. Why are we here? Where do we come from? What are we supposed to be doing? It is written, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Fast forward a little further ahead, God looked at everything that he had made, and he said it was very good after he'd made man in his image, after his likeness. God gives the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, puts the man in the garden to keep it, to tend it. There you go. There's the big idea. Fill the earth and subdue it with God's image and likeness. Telos. At a time when people are committing suicide because they're depressed, because they've been told by the government in whom they put far too much trust, you're non essential At a time when rampant experimentation with our gender and sexual identity causes people at the end of the experimentation to realize that they feel empty. That wasn't it. This is a dead end. Very often, it literally becomes a dead end and they kill themselves. And what is the Christian response to that? To say, I'm very busy living my private Christian life, making disciples over here. I don't want to be unloving to my neighbor and upset them. Well, good job not upsetting them as they kill themselves. They very happily end their lives and along the way buy into a very vapid, meaningless, postmodern outlook. Here's an aluminum pole. We're going to air grievances. We're going to reject Christianity, Rege- re- reject Christ ultimately. And then we sit idly by, smiling very nicely, being nice. Because for all its imperfections, it is more in tune with reality, Little John writes. Again, I would direct your attention to Augustine. This is what Augustine says about why Rome was successful. Rome was more successful than the empires it competed with the surrounding peoples and nations and cultures, it dominated because it was acting in closer accord with reality as it is. And you could say, well, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to dominate the world. You're missing the point. Acting in accordance with reality is a precondition for life. You cannot keep on living. You cannot keep on loving apart from truth, apart from a proper understanding of reality. If your assumptions are all faulty, your conclusions are going to be faulty as well. You're going to make bad choices and you're not going to be around very long. The people around you also. And if you love those people around you, well, then you have something to say about it when you see them destroying themselves. And if you don't really love them as you love yourself, the way Jesus commanded us to, as an outgrowth of our love for God, with all of our being, all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, well then, you can be content to watch them destroy themselves as you mind your own business. Continuing on. Second, this is the second reason, second way, Christian public culture is better than the alternatives. For Christians themselves, a Christian public culture is an aid to living out a life of Christian virtue. To be sure, it can also be a temptation, a temptation to complacency and compromise, but all in all, it is a benefit. No man is an island, and few Christians have the strength of character to live out the demands of the gospel all on their own. The support of a community that bestows recognition and preys on virtuous behavior and that discourages vice and makes it harder to get away with is a great blessing for the vast majority of people. Common grace. Common grace. And I just recently here in the past few months had a disagreement with my cousin Micah about this. I don't know if we still disagree or if I talked him into my way of seeing it or if we just were talking past each other. I don't know. But I look at common grace and I think a necessary component to common grace is that God sends his reins on the just and the unjust. And that traditionally, when Romans 13 is being followed and the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing, but is a minister of God, as the Apostle Paul writes, to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, when the governing authority does that, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, You benefit, you benefit when those who do good are rewarded, you benefit when those who do evil are punished, you benefit. When somebody goes shooting up a grocery store because they've given up on life having any meaning or purpose or any telos, they celebrate Festivus maybe, they decide they're going to air their grievances with bullets. It is a blessing to all involved if you call the cops and the cops come and put that threat to rest for everyone who's not been harmed. It is a curse to all when you can't call the cops because the cops are the ones firing indiscriminately into the crowd to break up a protest, to stop people from peacefully assembling for a redress of grievances, as very often happens in socialist and communist countries. We're going to put down this revolt as we see it, even if it's just a casual statement of, hey, we're people and we deserve some basic decency. We have needs, we have a responsibility, we have needs, our needs aren't being met. We can't even meet our own needs because you're restricting and oppressing us. Tiananmen Square comes to mind concentration camps come to mind. No man is an island. Few Christians have the strength of character to live out the demands of the gospel all on their own. The support of a community that bestows recognition and praise on virtuous behavior and that discourages vice and makes it harder to get away with is a great blessing for the vast majority of people. Now, on the one hand, this is talking about the church. That is what the church is about. You're supposed to not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as some do. You're supposed to gather together regularly to encourage, to edify, to build one another up. That's why God gives spiritual gifts to the members of the body according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthian church, to edify, to build up your given gifts so you can serve other people in the church. They're given gifts so that they can serve you and other people in the church. This is a testimony to the broader world outside the church. But so also, when Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you, what's it talking about? If not, some form of that very same thing. You're using your gifts, what God has blessed you with, to benefit your community, your city, your society, the context you've been placed in as a way of loving your neighbor, as a way of loving even those who don't know God, who are pagans, who celebrate Festivus perhaps. Third, a Christian public culture is even a support to Christian faith. No one is saved simply by being born into a Christian society That is obviously true. However, it should be equally obvious that you will have a larger chance of coming to saving faith in a society that encourages and promotes the work of the church and by its habits and customs attests to the transforming impact of the gospel. Now, here I will stop, little John, and I will put some devil's advocate remarks in to argue the other side's perspective. I know many concerned Christians who reject the idea of Christian America, historically or hypothetically being restored now or in the future. They reject Christian America because they look at, for instance, the Bible Belt in the South, and they say, these people think they're Christians, and that's worse. It's worse that they think they're Christians because they live in a Christian culture so-called, it's a sham, it's worse for them than if they didn't believe that they were Christians at all. Is it really worse for them? Pretty sure they're going to hell whether they're in Portland and they maybe have never even heard of Jesus except in a mocking way or whether they are in Birmingham And of course they go to church. Everybody goes to church. Yeah, but who is Jesus to you? The other side of the debate here that rejects Christian America thinks that a Christian public life actually is an impediment because it gives people a false sense of exactly what Little John says. Of course, obviously, obviously you're not A Christian just because you're born into a Christian society. Well, that's not so clear to everybody. It is obvious to those who are careful, but it's not obvious to everybody. There are people who are not very careful, who want to be so inclusive that they water down the gospel, and we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. But I'm not persuaded that this is an either-or. I think it's a false dichotomy, that either A we throw out the baby and the bathwater or B, you have to drink dirty, nasty, gross bathwater in order to keep the baby. That's the whole point of saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. By all means, throw out the bathwater. It's gross. It needs changed. Continuing on, but how do you maintain a Christian public culture? Culture is not, after all, simply self-replicating. However much we may think of it that way, Culture, a society's vision of the good and of the many subsidiary goods that aid us in our pursuit of the good, is inculcated. It has to be taught, handed down, publicly affirmed, and proclaimed. This requires institutions, especially educational institutions, and such institutions require funding. Okay, here's where, little John, respectfully, sir, I have to disagree. You could be benefited with institutions being reclaimed. But we need to have a bit more imagination. We need to be a little bit more of an imaginative conservative. Here. You don't need public schools to be reclaimed for Jesus in order to reclaim Christian America, or to revive Christian America, or to revive the expression of Christian faith in public life. All of those things need to happen, but as for me and my house, our institution is our family. Our institution is Mullet Academy. And more broadly speaking, our institution is a network of other Christian families homeschooling their kids who encourage us and who we encourage, who build us up and who we build up, our local church. The institution that's needed is not public education funded by public monies. The institution that's needed is the local church, encouraging families in its context to pull their kids out of the public schools and to teach them at home or to send them for a private education, a Christian education. If it can't be provided at home, find a Christian school. Get your kids out of this woke indoctrination. It's demonic. It really is. It really is demonic. The institution that needs to be reclaimed is not the public school. The institution that needs to be reclaimed is the church. (laughs) The church needs to be the church. If the church would be the church again, then we might have a hope of the expression of Christian faith in public life again, including but not limited to the family. Being a father, being a mother, raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord is hard work. It is taxing. Mentally, emotionally, morally, spiritually, financially, yes, but I would say financially as a tertiary or quaternary way. Primarily, first and foremost, raising a family is difficult and it takes all that you've got. If you're going to devote your children, consecrate your children, dedicate your children to the good Lord, that's not a one and done. And the church needs to be calling for its members, its disciples to be good stewards of that very great gift we have. You know, one way to look at this collapsing birth rate in broader American society, 0.1% growth last year, only 300,000 more people were added. That's ridiculous. That's dangerous, actually. One way to look at it, though, is that If Christians are still having children, we have a outsized influence on what America looks like in 20 years. When the hippies down the street aren't having any kids, they're living alone, lone wolf, live alone, die alone. But the Christian family on the block is expecting their eighth child next month. In 20 years, there are t- there are 10 times as many mullets as there are the hippie guy down the street. And actually, the hippie down the street is better for that. It's a blessing to him. I firmly believe that is part of how I'm seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh, our God, has brought us. Having lots of kids, by God's grace, trying to keep them clothed and fed and in the right minds, raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, giving them a good education, teaching them how to read and write and do their math and have a good sense of humor and read people and have people skills and treat people with respect, pick up after themselves and do good work and enjoy life and be a joy to those around them. I would personally love to see a resurgence of Christian America, but I'd love to see it Not in a weakened, sickly form like I think so many of us are tragically accustomed to. Do we even know what we're talking about, honestly? The 1950s? Twilight of the American Republic is a book you need to read if you haven't. I was just reminded of this as I was looking through my 2021 in books, my year in books on goodreads.com. Goodreads is a great website to get into. If you haven't checked it out, if you like reading, but you haven't ever heard of Goodreads, check it out. It's a social media kind of platform, but just for book lovers. And you can find me on there. You can follow me on there. I've got an author's page. All of my podcast episodes posted to WordPress also get reposted through the RSS to Goodreads. So you can keep following me on there if you like. I also We'll post book reviews on there, what I'm reading at any given time. But it's neat because you can see in your feed what people you know are reading, what they thought of the books they're reading. I can give you ideas of things to read next. You can comment back and forth and talk about the books you're reading. But I was reminded one of the books I read this past year, actually the first book review I wrote this year, was Twilight of the American Enlightenment. I said... Republic, my bad, Twilight of the American Enlightenment by George M. Marsden, The 1950s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. It wasn't the 1960s and the 1970s when everything started to come apart at the seams. It was actually the 1950s and, truthfully, 1930s, 1940s. I mean, nobody is alive who was old enough to know what was going on when... Herbert Hoover and Franklin Delano Roosevelt dramatically transformed American public life. And then World War II happens and we get distracted by the explosions and everything. But American public life changed dramatically because of the actions and leadership of intellectuals and politicians, academics and thought leaders, who moved us towards putting our faith and our hope and our trust in the state, in the experts. Trust the experts. What a stupid idea. Trust the experts turned into everything's got to be psychological. Everything's got to be sexualized, actually. The self was psychologized. Psychology was sexualized. Sex was politicized, as Carl R. Truman writes in another book I read this year, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Finishing up this section of Little John's piece. How do you maintain a Christian public culture? Culture is not, after all, simply self-replicating. However much we may think of it that way, culture, a society's vision of the good and of the many subsidiary goods that aid us in our pursuit of the good is inculcated. In every culture, in every age, the crucial institutions that uphold a public culture have required public support, which is to say government support. Au contraire, Little John. I'm sorry, I disagree with you there. The Protestant reformers, at least, weren't shy about this. They put public education at the center of their reforming agendas. Today, Christians have turned on public education because it has turned on them. But the correct solution is to recapture it, not to denounce the very notion of public education. Again, no. I'm sorry. No. You're quite wrong. Read my book, Little John. I challenge you, read my book. See if it changes your mind. And this is why we homeschool. Look it up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, somewhere. Anywhere books are sold online, I think you should be able to find it without too much trouble. The bedrock is not government support. You can't start with that. If you start with that, you're waiting for that. If you're waiting for that, we're all being passive until something that's not going to happen in that order happens. It has to start with the family. It has to start at home. It has to start with moms and dads stepping up, loving one another, having an intact marriage, not running off because they lost their temper, because they weren't feeling self-actualized enough, because they couldn't control themselves, because they just gave up nihilistically on the institution of marriage. No. Start your theological reformation by loving your husband, loving your wife, and then love your children. And when I say love, I mean like God's word guides us, instructs us, commands us to love in the fear and admonition of the Lord as we love ourselves. And then from that, raise your children well. Raise them to be a blessing. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but when they're imperfect, have some grace for them because they're not going to find it in the woke, secular monstrosity which wants to grind us all up to make its bread like a giant from Jack and the Beanstalk. V five fo I gotta leave it there. It's Christmas Eve. It's the morning of Christmas Eve. Haven't decided yet whether we're gonna open a big family gift or open stockings or what we're gonna do. Except I know we're going to really take it easy today. You can be praying for my wife Lauren. She's trying to be patient as she comes down the home stretch here. It's a bit early, so we don't want her to go into full-fledged labor for at least another week or two and it's going to drive her a little bit crazy but we're going to find some books to read we're going to find some movies to watch we're going to hang out maybe do our year-end review that should keep us seated for quite a while but a merry christmas to you screw festivus that's a dumb holiday sorry but actually i'm not sorry not sorry feats of strength